Hello, everyone. Welcome to Danger on Delmarva. My name is Rhonda Jefferson, and I'll be your host as we explore the dark and winding paths that lead us through the Delmarva Peninsula. Today, I'll be doing a little bit of a different episode. I've had a couple of people request, well, mainly family request, something more in line with Halloween since it is coming up so soon, much sooner than it feels like it should be because this month has just flown by. So I will have a couple of extra episodes this week. The episodes may be a little shorter than some of the other ones that I cover, but I have found in, you know, looking through some of my research that I've come across other stories that I think should be told but don't necessarily take up as much time as some of the others that I do cover, such as going an hour or even two or more when I do the multiple episodes per topic. Even though admittedly, this one will go longer than I originally planned because there actually was a lot more information than I thought there would be in terms of impact to the eastern shore or even just our environment in general. As with every episode, even if it's covering a topic that's a little different than what we normally cover, I want to have every episode focus on either dangers that we face, um, experiences that people have had, and most importantly, what we can learn from them. History will continue to repeat itself if we don't take some lessons to heart and make some changes. With this episode, we'll actually be covering not only points on Delmarva, but also some points in the western part of Maryland and in the um, southern part of Virginia. So it is extending a little bit past what we normally cover, but The Chesapeake Bay touches all three states. Most episodes that I do will touch upon topics that some may find distressing or upsetting. This episode will not have any overt acts or incidents that cause injury or harm, but there will be some discussion of the impact at least to one certain animal. Before I get into the episode, there are just a couple of things that I do want to cover. If you do get a chance, um, pop over to my other podcast, Mystifyingly Missing, True Crime and Thought-Provoking Events. It covers pretty much the same thing as I cover here, but it's more diverse geographically. Also, I do have a PayPal page If anyone would like to donate to help offset some costs that come along with doing a podcast, such as subscription services that I use to look up old newspapers or information or other resources that may need to be paid for to research an episode, as well as maintaining or getting new equipment. I've also heard a lot of content creators in the past say something about buying me a coffee. Um, That is another program that allows um, listeners to donate to content creators if they wish to do so. Um, So I did go on and establish a page there as well. Uh, And just as a reminder, I am combining the Danger on Delmarva Facebook page with the Mystifyingly Missing page as it does make them easier to maintain. So with all of that being said, Let's get started and learn a little more about Delaware, Maryland, and Virginia's very own sea monster, or bay monster, I guess, Chessie. We've all heard of the Loch Ness Monster, 
And many of us have probably heard of Champ on Lake Champlain. There's also Macaulay Mabembe that lives in the Congo River Basin. Then there's the Luska, which is in the Caribbean. And depending on the sighting, may be described as a gigantic octopus or even a type of chimera that is composed of a giant octopus and a shark. Sea monsters that live in the open water of the oceans have sometimes been discovered to be existing creatures, such as the giant and colossal squid, which at one time was known as a squishy, or more commonly that we hear, the kraken. So depending on whether or not you follow some cryptozoology, you may or may not have heard of some of these. There have also been masses of remains, I guess I'll say, that do wash up on shore sometimes, and those are known as globsters, meaning that they're unidentified. And while I'm a native of Delmarva, I'd never heard of Chessie, even though after I started looking at um, different articles and different things, I recognized the depiction, but didn't know it actually had a name. But following the nicknames of Nessie and Champ, this name is, of course, derived from the Chesapeake Bay. And Chessie is our very own bay monster or bay serpent. However, Chessie will serve a purpose in showing that just because something may look different or scary, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's bad. Now, Chessie also has a few different meanings around here. And I'll start with the first two. And maybe the fact that the name is used so often shows that we need to get a little bit more creative with the names that we're using. But the first Chessie that I could find was actually a cute, adorable, cuddly sleeping kitten. And this kitten was used as a mascot of the Chesapeake and Ohio Railroad. Chessie was a cat that the picture of the sleeping cat or the silhouette of the cat against a pillow was used as a logo and in different advertisements. At the time, which was 1933, the CNO or the Chesapeake and Ohio Railroad had just received air conditioning sleeping cars. So a little kitten was tucked into a bed and there was a slogan that said, sleep like a kitten and arrive fresh as a daisy in air-conditioned comfort. So this works on the level that nobody, I don't, I don't think at least, can resist a cute little sleeping kitten, even though the cat was anything like my cat, it wouldn't matter where they were sleeping, they would sleep about 20 hours a day. So a sleeping kitten may not necessarily mean it's sleeping because of air conditioning, but it was adorable. And it shows that our obsession with cats is nothing new. Keeping in line with its corporate logo and possibly trying to capitalize on the popularity of Chessie the Cat, the next use was on a new route that the CNO was thinking of putting together. The concept started in 1942, and that's when the idea of Chessie the train or train route was born. The chairman of the CNO was a man named Robert Young. And he had this idea of having a rail line that would go between Washington, D.C. and Cincinnati during the day, as well as having different connect connections to a number of different cities, 
um, closer to the East Coast, such as Newport News and Norfolk, Virginia. But if you've noticed anything about that date, it does put it right smack dab in the middle of World War II. So the country itself was looking at the commercial industry, especially those that would use materials such as steel or iron, to slow down production on what they would normally produce, and in some cases converting their normal production towards the war effort. So they would be manufacturing things that they normally wouldn't do. The CNO was looking at what would happen after the war, though. They were trying to get ahead of any new travel patterns that they may see after the war ended. They thought that after the war stopped, that there would be an influx of travel. And while the idea was first thought up just after the U.S. entered the war, they did not actually put everything together and request for the building of the Chessie until 1944. So the war was still going on, but the CNO still saw traffic of about 6.7 million riders in 1944. However, things did not go as planned, and the passenger count had fallen to 3.9 million in 1947 and to 3 million in 1948. Additionally, the B&O Railroad, or Baltimore and Ohio, already had a route running to Cincinnati called the Cincinnatian. So that would have been in direct competition of the customers that the CNO was used to accommodating. And so the cost of running more lines for fewer passengers would not make sense in any feasible business plan. While they did decide to test one train, by October 1948, they had pulled that train out and decided to use any equipment that they could um, from any of the trains that may have been built or in production from those trains to allocate them to the maintenance of trains they already had. Any that they did not you know, remove all of the equipment from and could be sold were sold to other railroad companies, including 12 cars to a company in Argentina. So alas, while Chessie the Sleeping Cat adorned trains for a time, the train route and train named the train route and the train named Chessie were no more. Now to the Chessie that we'll be discussing today. More modern sightings started in either 1934 or 1936, depending on which source you use. Other media reported that sightings only went back to 1982, while another one said that the first reported sighting was in 1846. The one in 1846 was when a Captain Lawson reported that he saw, quote, a small head creature, end quote, in 1846. Captain Lawson saw this creature between Cape Charles and Cape Henry in Virginia, and this was said to be at the mouth of the Chesapeake Bay. And that came from a book written by Mark Moran that was called Weird Maryland. Now, coincidentally, though, the more modern sightings did start around the same time that books were being published and distributed more regionally featuring the likeness of our dear reptile-like friend. In 1943, also, there were two men that were fishing in Baltimore. They were in the Chesapeake Bay and reported that they saw a creature in the bay while on their boat. Being that they were not familiar with a long-necked creature living in the bay, they weren't exactly sure what they were looking at. 
when a creature appeared about 75 yards from their boat. Now, unlike the enormity of creatures that we hear about, such as Nessie and Champ, Chessie was described with a head about the size of a football and football-shaped. It was also described like a horse's head. So with those descriptions, I'm thinking a smaller horse's head. But a football is not extremely big, so it's not as though we're looking for something along the scales of what we normally see or hear about Nessie and Champ. They did get a good look at the creature's head as they did report that it turned its head quite a few times. In 1963, there was a very credible sighting where a military helicopter was flying over the Bush River. So this does tell you this is a witness who usually is very detail-oriented, who probably wouldn't try to bring attention to something if it wasn't real. There were a couple quotes that I saw from this experience, and one was um, saying that, quote, something reptilian and unknown in the water, end quote, as well as in a letter that he actually sent to a Maryland senator. In that letter, he wrote, quote, I assure you that Chessie exists or my eyes were deceiving me, end quote. So at least from his, you know, quotes and correspondence, he definitely believed that there was some type of sea creature living in the Chesapeake Bay. Now, in 1978, there was an influx of sightings, and at this time, the creature was even being sighted more towards the rivers or to the western part of the Chesapeake Bay as well. One witness that saw Chessie was able to provide a sketch, and there was a photo. However, that particular creature that was spotted was determined to have been a manatee. Now, my first thought is a manatee is not something that you would expect to see in the Chesapeake Bay or even close to this far up in the Atlantic. They're normally found around Florida, and you know, that's where any pictures or information about them you know, were, that I've read or seen has been in Florida. But they do actually occasionally make their way this far north. One was actually rescued in 1994, and this is a very interesting story. Um, a manatee was seen in the Chesapeake Bay, and for a while, you know, people just saw that there was this large creature identified as a manatee in the bay, and there really wasn't, you know, a lot of concern about it. People did try to see a manatee there, which I probably would have been one as well. Um, they did estimate him to be about 1,100 pounds. And you know, normally, at some point, the manatees, if they do come this far north, will go back to Florida. But that's not what happened this time. He came up, and in October, though, as the weather was changing, the water temperatures went into the 60s. So as the temperatures dropped, that had a very negative effect on Chessie. All of a sudden, he was too cold and his life was actually, you know, in danger. He became more sluggish in his movements. And they said he was unresponsive at times, too. So he was really in a lot of danger. And the state 
um, Department of Natural Resources and the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, National Aquarium, basically anybody who had some knowledge of manatees or who could try to put things together to rescue a large animal, they were out in full force trying to find this manatee who had been nicknamed Chessie. Finally, after looking for him, they found him in a river near Queenstown. It was the Chester River. And they took him back to the National Aquarium so that they could kind of monitor him and nurse him if needed. And once he was all set to go, they did tag him. And Chessie the manatee was flown back to Florida. And as with many visitors to the shore, Chessie liked it here so much that he swam back up to the Chesapeake Bay in 1995. But then he decided he wanted to go a little bit further and explore the only other state that was smaller than Delaware. Chessie went to Rhode Island. Reports of Chessie the manatee continued in 2010 and beyond, where someone took a supposed picture, but that sighting could not be confirmed. However, though, the following year, um, Chessie was seen in Calvert County, and this was confirmed by the U.S. Geological Survey using Chessie's tag. Now, if you want to hear more about Chessie the manatee, getting an update on him, listen to the end. So again, to me, I would be pretty excited to see a manatee in the Chesapeake Bay, but at the same time, I would be concerned because he was out of his normal element. So while I was focused on Chessie the manatee, I actually need to jump back a little bit to look at some of the other sightings. There was a sighting near Kent Island, which is just barely the side of the Chesapeake Bay Bridge, um, so it is still on the eastern shore. There was a video that was recorded in 1982. I did read and listen to a couple of pieces on this particular sighting, and in some, a name was not provided, but in others, um, a name was provided, and that was Robert Frew. Robert was trained in wildlife management, so he was familiar with the animals that would live on Delmarva or in the Chesapeake Bay. Now, the video itself is somewhat grainy or hard to see because it was 1982. Um, now, the description that I read in some cases described the creature as having a snake-like movement, whereas some said that it was more of an up-and-down movement. The Smithsonian um, was unable to determine what type of animal was actually filmed, but Johns Hopkins Applied Physics Laboratory even got involved and tried to enhance the tape. Once they were able to get the image as clear as they could. The animal was described as, quote, brownish snake-like, like an aquatic animal round as a telephone pole with humps along its back and a football-shaped head, end quote. Another sighting was made in 1997, but so far the most recent sighting was in April of 2014. That was near Arundel Beach Road in Anne Arundel County in Maryland. Two people said that they saw the creature and it got within about five feet of their car. And while the earlier sightings, such as the one from 1936, 
um, the description didn't seem to, to belong to a larger animal. This one was described as being about 25 to 30 feet. The witnesses said they did not see a fin on the animal, but they did describe the head as football shaped. Going back to some of the other sightings, this one also did describe the creature as moving more like a serpent. Um, only the head and the tail came out of the water. One of the witnesses said at first he wasn't sure if it was possibly two creatures that were somewhat close together, but looking at the patterns that it made in the, the water, he determined that it was one creature, not two. And while at least one of the witnesses did have a cell phone, no picture was obtained. Now to answer the reason why, one of the witnesses said that they didn't take a picture because he was, quote, so busy trying to figure out what the hell I was looking at, end quote. Understandable, but he did call the Maryland Department of Natural Resources afterwards. So, Chessie does not appear to have any aggression. As to why the witness said it was only about five feet from their car, they said that it was at a very high tide when they did park there. So, I guess it could get that close, but you know, that to me, that seems a little close. I also know, though, in times of anxiety or panic, time can sometimes seem to slow down or speed up. I wonder if also depth perception or how far the creature may have been could have been distorted as well. So what can local communities do with their very own sea or bay monster that only makes appearances every once in a while? They can use his image to promote the responsibilities that we have towards our environment and to teach children about how important it is to conserve one of the greatest natural resources on the East Coast, the Chesapeake Bay. In 1986, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service used an image of Chessie on a publication. This was a coloring book that was to be used for educational purposes. The title of this coloring book was named Chessie, a Chesapeake Bay story. Five years later in 1991, a second book was published called Chessie Returns. So I will have a link that has a PDF version of the coloring book, the first one, if anyone might be interested in looking at that or using it to try to promote um, con conservation of the environment and protecting our environment. You know, it could be used to start a discussion with someone younger about how important it is that we all are good stewards of the environment and nature that's all around us. Um, that link will be from virginia.gov and also to, um, I apologize, I forgot to mention when discussing the 1982 um, sighting, there will be a couple links to a TV station, local TV station, um, WBAL, when I say local, that's actually Baltimore. So it was local to the sighting. And they do have the video on at least one of those stories. So I'll have them linked as well. Now, throughout the 1980s, Chessie continued his or her role as an icon to promote responsibility and safeguarding of our natural resources. The illustrations of Chessie always showed a smiling, friendly creature. 
She started making appearances in more national publications, especially those promoted by the U.S. government. And an author named Eric Chisholm wrote a book called Discovering Chessie, Waterfront Regional Identity and the Chesapeake Bay. And he made a pretty keen observation about why Chessie could be so influential in promoting environmentalism. He said, quote, the friendliness of the monster could not help but convey the sense that the bay was a harmless victim of pollution, end quote. And that makes sense. The Chesapeake Bay has been and should continue to be a great natural resource to all who visit, for all who fish, and for all who maintain their livelihoods on the water. But unfortunately, as time has gone by, it has become more and more polluted. There are pollutants that come from rivers that are even farther north than Delmarva, such as from Pennsylvania. While steps have been taken for decades now to try to ensure that the Chesapeake Bay lives on, there are initiatives and commitments from different states that are trying to improve the way that the bay is maintained to stop pollutants or any other damage that can be done to the bay. If the resources within the bay, such as the fish and marine life, are lost, then the livelihood of many, many people will be destroyed, as well as the enjoyment that we have from being able to go out on the bay or to enjoy its beauty. So Chessie has tried to lend a helping hand and let her image be used to teach others about the importance of the Chesapeake Bay. Local businesses have also used Chessie as a mascot or theme in their respective organizations. A brewery out of Cambridge, Maryland, known as RAR Brewing, has a picture of Chessie on some of the beer cans. A boat seller uses the name of Chessie with an image on that business's sign that shows a smiling, happy Chessie. There's also a Chessie Federal Credit Union in the area, but I think that has more to do with the railroad, possibly, or other uses of the word Chessie. Government officials have even become involved and are concerned about Chessie's well-being, as well as the scientific research behind finding Chessie. In 1980, a state senator named George W. Della made a resolution during the state legislature to, quote, encourage serious scientific inquiry by the state into Chessie and other unusual animals in the Chesapeake Bay, end quote. Unfortunately, though, at the time, this proposal did not go over very well. However, Della defended his position by saying that he had received a number of letters over a 20-year time frame concerning Chessie. He indicated that the letters came from members of the community in different walks of life, from children to researchers. So what is Chessie? Most people believe that Nessie and Champ if they exist, are plesiosaurs. But Chessie's attributes lead to possibly another designation as being a bacillosaurus. Another theory which may on the surface make some sense, but in the long run may have some problems with it, is that Chessie is a descendant 
of anacondas that were on ships. Now, I have heard of snakes being used to control mice or rats on ships, and during the 17th and 18th centuries, this was a pretty common form of pest control on ships. So this theory goes that ships that were abandoned or decommissioned sat where they were in the bay, and the anacondas that would have been aboard the ships to control the rat population escaped from the ships and have lived on since that time and have continued to procreate. Now, I guess theoretically, if there were multiple ships with multiple snakes in them, that they could eventually find each other in the wild to mate because they all would be searching for the same type of habitat. And if the boats were abandoned in approximately the same area, it's not unrealistic to think that they all would have gravitated towards a certain area and from that point started to procreate and we have future generations of anacondas or there even could have been more than one snake on each ship where you know snakes didn't mate and before the ships were even decommissioned there were multiple snakes on each ship even multiple generations on each ship anacondas do live in water but do come onto the land and they usually go to thick vegetation. Um, so, you know, again, it's not unfeasible as these anacondas can even hold their breath up to 10 minutes. So their head would only need to breach the surface, you know, only about six or seven times per hour. So even though they don't need to continuously have their heads above water, comma, it also means that they can't live indefinitely under the water. Now, one of my thoughts about this being an anaconda was how it could survive in the freezing water. In the winter of 1976 to 77, the Chesapeake Bay froze over completely, and there have been historically other winters where the bay did freeze over. The areas that formed ice included about 85% of the bay itself, along with rivers and streams that were in the same general area. So yes, anacondas can live in areas that have seasonal temperature changes, and that does describe Delmarva. But the average temperature would need to be about 50 degrees Fahrenheit at least. So when you have circumstances where a bay freezes over completely, you kind of wonder that you know, if this anaconda could survive. Now, when the water does get cold at the 50 degrees, the anacondas usually go down further because the water will stay warmer the deeper they go. Now, I did not find whether or not they could hibernate in that time period because if they go further underneath the water, how will they be able to get up every 10 minutes or so in order to breathe? or be able to breathe if the bay itself is completely frozen over. Now it is a cold-blooded animal, so we do hear of cases of cold-blooded animals being able to withstand those temperatures, the lower temperatures, and still survive because they get warmer, I guess you would say. So I guess the question here would be, could the anaconda survive or anacondas 
survive in those temperatures since it's only for a few months. And here's my other question, which I could not find an answer to, but I don't care what century I'm living in. I would not want a snake that big roaming a ship that I was sleeping on. So unless there was at least one person in every bunk area that stayed awake to make sure that the snake did not crawl into my bed because they didn't think there were enough rats on the ships, no, I could not do that. But maybe mythology that surrounds the anacondas is the reason that I feel that way. That's the reason why I'm scared of not only anacondas, but any snake. Snakes have pretty bad reputations, but anacondas themselves are not usually aggressive towards humans. They're only aggressive if they feel threatened or if they feel that their eggs are threatened. So there is a difference in what an anaconda can do and what they actually do. An anaconda is strong and it could squeeze a human being, but that doesn't mean that they will do that every time they come across a human being. In regards to the size of the anacondas, there are reports that Chessie is 20 feet or more. Um, you know, we heard the one encounter where they estimated it to be 25 to 30 feet, but many scientists don't believe every report that they hear about a large anaconda. They say that while an anaconda can get to 20 or 25 feet, possibly, and maybe even longer, those snakes are rare. And because I'm not a scientist, I will say this at least according to what I've read, that the snake that is normally associated with killing extremely large animals is a reticulated python. You know, but as I said before, I don't like snakes at all. Um, no. So I could never have been aboard a ship where I knew that there was a snake that big on board. I mean, even one time on the very first weekend when we actually bought our first home, which we're still at, and it rained torrentially, like low-level flooding, and my husband had to go down into the crawl space. You know, we were worried because you know, we wanted to make sure the sump pump was working, and when he came up, he said there were snakes down there, and I was kind of upset by that. And then someone um, told me, well, at least you don't have to worry about mice. So that didn't help either. But basically throughout the whole weekend, every time I heard an unusual noise, I swear I thought a snake was coming up through the vents. I know that was not logical, but I just could not get that out of my head. So I am a person who does not like to use absolute terms such as never or always. And the exploration of any type of science is the only way that science moves forward. We have to ask questions and keep exploring so that our knowledge grows. We have to keep an open mind and remember that even if something seems improbable, it's not necessarily impossible. So even though we don't have a close-up picture or recording of a sea creature in the Chesapeake Bay, where we can definitively get a shape or figure, and even though remains have never been found, I'm not going to say that years from now a discovery is not going to be made and there's you know, this creature that 
is very rare, but, but still a marine mammal nonetheless. Do I believe Chessie could be an anaconda? While, again, I'd never say never, I would really leave that out as a possibility. As far as what I think, I think it's a manatee. I think Chessie is literally a creature that was named Chessie in honor of Chessie. So kind of wrap your brain around that. There's Chessie, the sea animal, the sea serpent. And when a manatee arrives in the Chesapeake Bay, they name it Chessie in honor of that sea serpent. However, that sea serpent all along was a manatee because while some of his visits to the eastern shore have kind of dwindled, Chessie's story was not over. First, Chessie was a trailblazer, or is it more of a bay blazer? I don't know. But he was the first manatee to fly to Florida, so I do have to kind of wonder how many other manatees may have flown to Florida. But I guess if they do swim outside of their normal region, they might have to be. He was also the first manatee to ever spend some time recuperating at the National Aquarium. He was the first manatee tagged and tracked along the Atlantic coast. He was also a manatee that helped to formulate the protocols on how to rescue manatees that have ventured too far up into northern regions. Steps were taken during his rescue that have helped save so many other manatees as his rescue helped set up protocol and standards for when these types of incidents occur. In February of 2021, a male manatee was found in Riviera Beach, Florida, and he was described as emaciated. He had pneumonia and was very malnourished and was almost dead. This was our Chessie. He was taken to SeaWorld Orlando, and that's where he was identified. And Chessie was given a lot of personalized care. Throughout his stay from February to approximately May of 2021, he was nursed back to health and, as of May 2021, was scheduled to be released back into his normal environment. If you would like to read more about the status of manatees, at least as of earlier this year, I will leave a link to an article because they're still considered a threatened species. And just like with the Chesapeake Bay, any of the resources, the vegetation that they eat, if that's threatened, then all of the species that eat that vegetation are also threatened. So I will just leave that linked as well. And thank you all for listening to this little bit of a different episode. I did enjoy reading about Chessie the manatee um, and just how he seems to really like the Chesapeake Bay and seems to have continued visits um, off and on over the past couple decades. I will be getting another episode out later this week because it is or will be the anniversary of the event. So I wanted to make sure I had it out for that. I appreciate everybody tuning in and everybody have a great day. Bye.